There are many pathways in the hospitality industry and whether it's vinified and a sommelier with us or whether it's, you know, a, a waiter with a passion on the floor of a restaurant, there are many different ways you can go and craft out a career in hospitality. Today on Dirty Linen, we are talking wine, wine lists, wine lists in restaurants, the joys of drinking wine, the joys of learning about wine. Our guest today is Luke Campbell. He's the founder of Vinified Wine Services. Uh, Sommelier uh, trains people in wine and I think has a pretty unique perspective because he's in and out of so many different restaurants. So I think we'll get a little bit of an industry lowdown today. Luke, welcome to Dirty Linen. Jenny, thank you very much for having me. How do you describe what you do when people ask you? I absolutely explain to them that I'm a sommelier first and foremost. My business is a wine brokerage that manages your seller. We consult to the industry. But first and foremost, we're about drinking wine in greater detail. Mm, detail. I mean, that's an interesting word to use. Um, it kind of grabs me because I feel like I'm a wine enjoyer and appreciator. I don't. I feel like I'm not very good at remembering the details around wine. So what, what do you mean when you say that? Well, I think it's always important that every glass of wine, behind it there's a story. And you know yourself from being a food writer and a journalist of such esteem, Danny, that everything has a sense of place. And with wine, we often forget about it. We guzzle it down and we don't actually often consider the story. So whenever we serve a wine from Vinified out of one of our members' cellars or even on a restaurant table, we're cognizant of telling that story. There's often a great framework behind it, whether it be a sense of place or whether it be a story the winemaker's gone through to get it there. Mm, Yeah, because I feel like the stories that resonate most with me are yeah, I guess the travel stories or the personal stories, not so much, you know, uh, I don't know, the the climatic conditions or um, the winemaking methods, but I suppose... Who, who, you, who you share it with, where you were, <laughs> did you drink it out of a cup or a plastic container? <laughs> Hang on a minute, you, you, it's like you were there. <laughs> <laughs> but I suppose that's so much the skill of a sommelier is reading people and sort of where they're at on their wine journey, isn't it? Oh, the skill the skill of the sommelier is wide and varied. I think if you can't read a, a, a customer, then it's no good being a sommelier because everybody's on a different part of their journey. I think your your wine journey, it's it starts from so many different places. You've identified it that yourself, Danny. It might start with travel. It might start from your family history or it might start from the visit with friends. And where did you start your wine journey, Luke? Like what, what hooked you in? <laughs> That's a great question, actually. I was born in a wine region and I think I might have been about uh, might have been about 17 or 18 before I realised that not everybody got a job stomping grapes or running around vineyards in their teenage years. Most kids were sensible. They went out and washed cars or got a, got a paper run or... We just got out in the vineyards, Danny, and I was very fortunate to have a couple of great mentors in great wineries um, that just helped me along the way and, and guided my wine journey, whether it was crushing grapes or cleaning out vats or tasting wine for that matter. I, I think I was encouraged just to, to, to have a go and before I knew it, I was kind of working in entrenched in hospitality and great restaurants and people assumed that because I was from a wine region, I knew about wine. It wasn't until much later that I actually got a grasp of vino. 
And w- which which was the region? Where did you grow up? I was born and raised in the Hunter Valley. So, yeah, I grew up, you know, picking grapes at Tyrrells or stomping grapes at Lakes Folly. Um, yeah, t- taking tour groups around the Hunter Valley or, or working in the restaurants uh, around there as, as a youth, I guess. And was there a wine or a wine experience that really just opened it all up for you where you really felt like you wanted to go deeper and further with, with your wine journey? <laughs> Absolutely it was. There's, uh, I, think, I think most, most winos, or, or as they're called in the industry, or m- most professionals, they have an aha moment. Uh, I can still remember mine. Mine was a um, – it was with the great Stephen Lake at Lakes Folly. We were pressing and making Cabernet and Chardonnay, as they still do today, under the guidance of Rod Kemp. Uh, and I've since gone on to work with Ron, Rod Kemp as well at Lakes Folly. But my aha moment was working under Stephen Lake. And we had a lunch during vintage, actually. It was a particularly um, great vintage. And uh, he brought out this wine. It was a wine at the time that I couldn't spell, Valpola, Valpola, Valpolicella. And um, it was a red, red drink at that time it wasn't even a wine to me it was just a, a drink and i and i tasted this elixir is what it was and it was like the angels just sang danny it was uh you know the stars were aligned everything kind of lined up and uh i knew there was much more to just this industry than shiraz and semion and chardonnay for that matter it was it was quite a burgeoning moment in my career wow i love hearing that um you know, I love talking about different pathways in hospitality on this podcast. And, um, you know, you, you mentioned you worked in wineries, you worked in restaurants. Like, tell us tell us about that journey and sort of how you've ended up running your own business and, and I guess having all these different strings to your bow. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, first and foremost, going, going back to go forward is, you know, we, we're always allowed to taste wine at home. We're never allowed to drink. My father was a licensing solicitor. We, he, he had a cellar. He had a cellar full of aged wines, albeit mainly Shiraz. Um, and so wine was kind of constant. It was, all, it was always there. Winemakers were all always around at our house or we were visiting wineries and winemakers. After I had that aha moment with Stephen Lake at Lakes Folly in um, the very early 90s as a young you know teenager effectively, I then went on later to, you know, work in hospitality venues around Sydney and I got a job actually working I'd worked my way up and working for a great uh, restaurant and great restaurateur in Neil Perry's Rockpool group and I was taken under the wing of the great Greg Fraser Greg Fraser uh, is an industry legend he ended up taking Neil's philosophy to Qantas in those days and he was the one that said to me, he said, oh, Luke, you've, you've got, not only have you got a passion, you've got a real knack for this. You need to go and study. Um, and I was like, study wine, Greg? You know, I wanted to be an architect, Danny, so, or a graphic designer at those stage. I wanted to take my art in another direction effectively. And I was just trying to get through um, studies and make some money whilst working hospitality. And Greg really tipped that kind of ethos on its ear for me and um, so I, I went away and I did a bit of research on the Wine and Spirits Education Trust and, and where you go to become a master of wine and I thought to myself, wow, okay, this is a real undertaking and 
for me in those days, you couldn't study a wine and spirits education trust course anywhere in Australia. You could only study it either in France or the UK. And so from from there on, it was a, a, Greg had really lit a fire. So I, you know, I, I earned enough money. I saved enough money. I, I begged, borrowed, and plundered. I didn't steal, but I, I worked my butt off actually to raise the tuition fees and go from there um, out of Sydney and with a little bit in between, but I ended up in London studying at the Wine and Spirits Education Trust. And I chose London rather than France because you got there, you got to the Institute and your lecturers were masters of wine and um, with great tuition and, and there was just no looking back at that stage. I knew a career in the wine industry was my calling, but I wasn't quite sure if it was going to be on the floor as a psalm or whether it was going to be viticulture or whether it was going to be winemaking, having grown up around winemakers and, you know, and also enjoying the country life and the outdoors. I didn't know if it was going to be viticulture or winemaking, but I soon in London, I soon got a, a penchant for the wine bars and still working in hospitality in London. I worked for um, some, I worked for Conran restaurants. We actually, when study got all too much, I actually spent a good 18 months running a coffee stall in the borough market. So by night I was studying wine and by day I was uh, serving coffee and tasting coffee. And coffee, like wine, meets the palate in the same place. So it was quite a good hunting ground for my wine studies. From there, she took me to Scotland, where my home as a Campbell, my uh, family and family tree are and, and still are. And I worked in a group of Michelin restaurants there buying wine and being tutored, actually, by still one of my great mentors today, a French sommelier from the Loire. And he really taught me about the regions of, of France, but also the other regions of Europe, you know, as a young 23, 24, 25-year-old, these were all very, very new to me. And, and so we tasted some of the world's best wines by day and then by night uh, doing Michelin star service. We got to serve these wines matched to some of the best food in the world. Um, it, was an it was an extraordinary experience and one for a little-known Australian sommelier just to run with. It was, um, it, it was uh, an unrivaled kind of study ground effectively uh, I just love I mean I love this journey but I, I particularly love the way you're really honoring the people who helped you along the pathway I mean it really sounds like you felt that you'd found a network and an international family that could uh, yeah help you help you in this in this path I, I really did I, I um everywhere along the way you know that yeah just you know it's the, I always think um I think any professional will enjoy the help they've had along the way. I mean, my my business now, Vinified itself, is twelve years of twelve years of age, but it didn't just come about. It it, it, it blood, sweat, and tears, and a lot of help along the way, a lot of professional advice, um, a lot of professional guidance, Danny. And I think any professional, whatever career it is, whether you're laying bricks or shucking oysters or you know, serving some fine butter, whatever it might be, every professional would have had assistance to get there. So what happened after Scotland? Yeah, gee, I, I left Scotland with, with my uh, now wife, who's a Victorian, and we, we came home after, gee, a good, a good stint overseas. We came back 
uh, Vanessa, my wife, she helped open um, Glass in Sydney with Luke Mangan. And I got a job working in a little-known wine stall, Ultimo Wine Cellars, as a retailer. And I was very, very fortunate um, there. John Osbeeston, who's an absolute industry legend, took me under his wing and we used to, and allowed me to do with my experience. He allowed me to drive the delivery van and participate and host all of their Saturday tastings. It was in the days of retail, independent retailer when they did free Saturday night, Saturday afternoon tastings, and we tasted mainly European wines on those Saturdays. And so from there, John kind of gave me carte blanche to pull whatever out of the cellar that, he, that we had access to that he was importing at the time and talk to his customer base and build a rapport about, you know, what great aged wines were or talk to people about the great regions of Italy or the vintages of Burgundy or what was particularly good coming off the boats at the time. John, um, he, he was a guiding light and he's when he sold the Ultimo Wine Centre and went on to, to bigger and better things, I'm sure. But a lot of your listeners will be aware of the Gravitas, the name like John Ospeason brings to the wine industry. And is that where you started to connect with um, people who had sellers at home, like as, as well as working with hospitality, working with with private wine collectors? Yeah, absolutely. So I quickly realised, so I spent a good uh, couple of years in Sydney working in wine retail and came back to, um, then I came back to Melbourne. Uh, and worked for another great independent retailer in Melbourne, buying and selling imported wines. And again, just realised once you got sold a bottle of wine, there was no real after-sales service. People wanted to know when to drink, how to drink, what their wine was worth. And there was no real, you know, that, that there was no, no one to call. You know, who are you going to call? Ghostbusters. We, we were, <laughs> that was kind of us. So that was, Binified was born out of it. You know, I wrote a business model and I, it's effectively a gym membership. We started it out initially only doing restaurants and hotels, which was my background and managing their cellar. But that was very, very short-lived. We quickly realised that it was the private sector and the personal people that had a collection, whether it be 50 bottles in a wine fridge or 25,000 under a house, they, they, everybody needed some guidance. And so it's a membership model and people pay a membership and we assign them a sommelier. And then from there, our sommeliers work to ensure that you have the right amount of wine and the right amount of cellar, the right amount of cell, aged wine for your benefit and based on your preferences your budgets and the requirements of what your seller needs to be. I mean, you must have seen some incredible private sellers. Can you give us a little sneak peek? <laughs> uh, <laughs> we, don't, we don't talk a lot about our, our members individually, but, yeah, we, we have seen some extraordinary sellers. To We've seen some extraordinary muck-ups as well. So <laughs> um, we, we do a lot of design work with our, with our sellers when we're building them and setting them up, and you, you see some... Um, Absolute crazy mistakes, uh, as as well as you see some real real feats. Um, but yeah, so I can probably the the one um, muck up that really strikes me is I walked into a um, a, a north facing kitchenette actually in Clavelli many many years ago. I say many years ago now, five years ago, well before uh, COVID came about. And I walked up the steps of this wonderful terrace house in Cavelli in the eastern suburbs of Sydney. 
we walked through this wonderful dark kind of um, lounge room and the gentleman was talking to me about his cellar and how his palate has begun to change and the wine doesn't taste the same. And we walked through past the staircase. It was all dark and I was thought, oh, all right, the cellar might be under the stairs. And no, kept walking out into the kitchenette and the kitchenette was a glass atrium, <laughs> Danny, and... And it was quite warm at the time, and, and and I said to the gentleman, I said, "Oh, great! So, is the is the cellar back? Is it underneath the house, or is it back behind the stairs?" And he said, "No, the cellar's here actually." And he turned around 180 degrees, and the cellar was in wine racks uh, above eye level, above the fridge, in what would have been the old kitchen shelving, right around the back wall of this glass atrium. <laughs> wow! And he says to me, <laughs> he says to me, "Oh, you know, we we." we ripped out all the shelves and, and we've placed the bottles in their individual racks for protection. But since we've done it, my palate seems to have changed and I'm not enjoying any of the wines anymore. And he had some really interesting wines there. He had some great Californian Cabernets. He had some wonderful Pinot Noirs from Burgundy, all with a great amount of age on them. And so we, and I said, oh, well, have you got any that are open at the moment? He said, oh, no. So we, we started to pull a couple of bottles out. And, you know, the, the, one of the wines was leaking. Another of the wines was um, completely oxidised. And I said, do all the wines taste like this? And they were all basically tasting the same. And he said, yeah, that, as a matter of fact, they all are tasting the same. And I said, oh, you, you've got, you know, you've got a really interesting seller here. That, you know, who put it in? And he said, oh, m myself and my partner, we, we put it in. And I said, oh, did you have anyone, you know, give, give you any advice? And he said, no, we just like the look of it. And I said, oh, well, unfortunately, what you're doing is effectively you're cooking your wine cellar every day. You, <laughs> every day your wine cellar is here facing north in this glass atrium. It's, it's up fluctuating about 15 or 16 degrees by night and by day. <laughs> and so consequently, you're cooking your wine. He was absolutely flummoxed um, and he had no idea. Um, of what he'd done to his wine cellar. That's so sad. It was so sad. His collection was about a two. It was a. It was about a two hundred and fifty bottle cellar. Um, and as a collection, you know, that would be on the smaller side. But yeah, devastatingly so. He'd had it there for a number of months, and yeah, I, I would hazard a guess uh, it wouldn't have stayed there for much longer. Ah. <laughs> oh. And on, on 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 average, for a seller, you know, if you, if you want to have a uh, you know a seller that's producing maturing wines uh, at a time, if you drink two for your listeners' sake, if you drink more than two bottles a week, two or three bottles a week, on average, you need to be putting in your cellar a dozen wines a month. So as you get to a point where you've got about eleven or twelve hundred wines in your cellar over time, and you'll just be drinking in that case, you'll just be drinking mature wines at at maturity or just above current age. And so it's a good tip actually if you are starting a cellar or you have a cellar just to put, you know, think about it, put about a dozen away a month every six weeks and that will help your cellar grow. How do you think we're going in terms of enticing people into hospitality, nurturing them when they get there and, yeah, helping them see it as a viable and fun career? Oh, gee, um, that's a biggie. It, well, it, it is a viable, it is a viable career, and it is a, a passionate professional industry like ours. I think it's up to us as um, 
you know, as the people who've made a profession out of the career, Danny, and you certainly have, and I'd like to think I have, it's up to us to be supportive, you know, to, to give back. You know, I, I sat on the committee of Sommeliers Australia for five years because I wanted to give back to the industry and nurture those young people or even new professionals to the industry coming up through it. I know you speak on plenty of panels. I know through your writing, you know, you've got a passion. And I think it's us to us, up to us to create that, you know, t- t- team orientated attitude and display professional ethics at all times and, and just the community, the hospitality community, moreover, the wine industry that I live and breathe, it's a small industry. It's a colloquial industry. We work together. its I think it's really up to us. It's a long answer to a short question, but it's up to those people within it to prove there is a straightforward path. Yeah, that's so interesting. I, I think that is such an important angle. It's like, I suppose if, if you act professional, if you believe you're professional, then it does contribute to the overall professionalization of the industry. I also think it, it's got to have something to do with like the broader public and the respect that's given to people that work in hospitality. And I mean, you work, you know, you look at both sides, like you see wine collectors who, you know, don't work in hospitality. And of course you work with sommeliers and restaurants um, who are part of the hospitality industry. I mean, do you do you feel like the dining public does respect, you know, the various arts, crafts, and professions that are in hospitality? Right now, you know, I, I don't I don't think so. Like, as a sommelier, you know, who, who have actually studied, if I was just walking around the restaurant floor, um, people, you know, they might respect me once I started to speak, but if I was walking around the restaurant floor wearing a wet set badge or a master sommelier badge or a bunch of grapes denoting that I might have had some experience, all of a sudden they could see that I was experienced and then they might give me credit for the professionalism that I've taken. But if you're a mixologist of 25 years in the industry or whatever, you're not wearing a badge, but you might be talking to talk and I don't think really consumers are taking it seriously as a professionalism, a professional career? No, I don't think they are. Well, I I, I think you're right. But I even think that the recognition for the, those badges, which do denote an incredible amount of work, there's not that much recognition, even of those outside of people who've, you know, are, are part of the industry. I wonder if there'd be some kind of, yeah, like how could that be better promoted? And perhaps there do need to be other accreditations that are sort of easily discernible you know, like a doctor gets called a doctor, you know, like it, there isn't perhaps enough, there aren't enough ways for people to understand all the work and knowledge that goes into being a hospitality professional. Yeah, well, the, the- there, there isn't. I, I think that's probably a broader issue for the industry as a whole. I, I know Sommeliers Australia do a mountain of work uh, in education space. They do a mountain of work in the, the diversity and inclusion space. And that has really burgeoned the amount of people taking the, the uh, hospitality industry up as a profession. And harking back to what you mentioned before, fr- from within it, do do the consumers recognise it? I think it's bodies like that and professionals like us that can only help. Yeah. Well, it's really interesting, you know, even going back to the origins of your career, you know, when you started to take it seriously, it was when someone 
you know, you were thinking of doing a different course and someone said to you, well, you know, have you thought about studying wine? And then it's like, it's almost like even for you, it put the industry into a different light. Completely. But at at that stage, so that was like, you know, mid to late 90s, at that stage, I could have gone to ride TAFE and become a chef and some great chefs have come out of that cooking school, but I couldn't have gone anywhere, nowhere and done a course on wine. I could have gone to the Sydney Community College and and maybe tasted a couple of Shirazes, but there was nowhere for me to go and get an accreditation. Now, ride TAFE had, had the the wine academy and you can study wine you know anywhere from the city wine shop here in melbourne to the academy in sydney you know and and many places in between but in those days i had to go overseas to study um there there wasn't a pathway now there are ample pathways backed by the government and private enterprise um and it 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 is uh you know a, a great industry to be a part of Luke, are there any restaurants that you've worked with re- with recently that, you know, I don't know, have stood out? Oh, thanks for asking, Zana. Yeah, we, we've just uh, helped curate the greatest and largest, by our knowledge, Chablis list in the world at Pearl Chablis and Oyster Bar. So this uh, is a really small 29-seater um, bar, effectively wine bar and restaurant serving freshly shucked oysters, but also an amazing French wine bar menu with parfait, you know, sous vide fish and a lovely venue for for a meal, but complemented by one of the greatest wine matches and food matches in the world, which is Chablis and oysters. It's just, it's on Burke Street. Um, it is a, a wonderful venue and it's really exciting. In fact, it's a thrill to work with such a wine list over 445 wines on the list and the largest portion of that devoted to Chablis. Wow. I mean, how do you even do that? Like, I mean, I'm assuming you're not just Googling Chablis and just seeing what happens. (laughs) No, I I must admit, um, you know, I'm the benefit of a great collector. So the man behind it, uh, the gentleman uh, behind Pinchy's, has had a massive penchant, would you believe it, for collecting wine and moreover um, collecting and cellaring the great Chablis of, of our time effectively. And he has amassed the collection and now he wants to share that with the general public match to some of the best oysters um, you know, that, that Australia has. He's got connections with the great oyster farmers um, from Steve Folletti at Moonlight Flats to the guys in Tassie who do the Angazis, to, you know, so the Wap and Go producers. So he's got a great array of oysters. And you can sample them any time. The venue's open late. It's just about to be open seven days, um, if it's not already by the time you're listening to this podcast. And I think it's it's more than a passion process. It's more, more than a passion project, Danny. It's gone beyond that now, and it's materialised into this wonderful venue, city venue. Don't you just love that about food and drink is just how these obsessions can be shared so generously, just like to go so deep and into something and then to want other people to like latch onto your passion? <laughs> well, I mean, it, it happens, you know, the, the the world over, whether you've got, you know, Neil, Neil Perry with his Blackmore beef or you've got, 
the boys at, at Divine Restaurant and Bar in Sydney with their world largest Amaro listing uh, and their great passion for Italian food. I think it's the story of hospitality professionals the, the world over. In this case with Pearl, I'm the beneficiary. You know, it's been a real, uh, a, a real amazing journey to help curate such a list. Yeah, I just love it. I just think it's, you know, as long as there are people, there are going to be amazing hospitality experiences and it's just such a privilege to yeah, intersect with just how specific it can be um, and, yeah, it just really adds to your whole experience of being human. I just absolutely love it. Um, Luke, it's been so wonderful to speak to you. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to say as we wrap it up? Oh, Denny, thank you very much. You know, I've, I've very much enjoyed your work on, on Dirty Linen over the, the last period as well. You've had some wonderful guests. You and I actually share uh, a favourite recipe of mine is actually that batter from Michael Bukash. You spoke you spoke to it in, in his episode. Um, but, you know, uh, just a word on professionalism. As someone who's started, went out on his own and started a business and forged a, a career in small business, um, there are many pathways in the hospitality industry and whether it's vinified and a sommelier with us or whether it's, you know, a, a waiter with a passion on the floor of a restaurant, there are many different ways you can go and craft out a career in hospitality. So if you are thinking about it, source someone you admire out and talk to them about it and hopefully they'll be able to guide you down that path. We'd love to have you. Oh, I love it. Great your recruitment drive. And yes, that, that beer batter recipe um, is so simple, never, never fails. And yeah, I absolutely love it too. Um, okay, Luke, it's been awesome to have you as part of the Dirty Linen family. Thank you so much for sharing your stories with us today. Thanks for having me, Danny. This is Dirty Linen and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about, hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you. This is a Deep in the Weeds production. <laughs> there's, there's, a, there's a puppy dog. That's not mine. That's not mine. No, that's my dog. <laughs>